Caesar had accustomed himself to great effort and little rest, to concentrate on his friend's business at the expense of his own, and never to neglect anything which is worth doing as a favor. He craved great imperium, an army and a new war so that he could show his talent. Sallust, late 40s BCE. Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, and welcome to episode 23 of the March of History. I wanted to start this episode out a little bit differently than previous episodes with that quote about Caesar, just to give you a better idea of what contemporaries felt was Caesar's life ambition, namely to gain an army and to fight a great war and to win glory and therefore prove his talent to the world of his contemporaries and to history. And Sallust was actually one of his, I guess you'd say one of his supporters in Rome and, and later during the civil wars would actually be on Caesar's side. So he's a person who actually knew Caesar and so would presumably know more so what he's talking about when describing Caesar and his ambitions than most would. But before we go any further, I want to recap what we talked about in episode 22. You'll remember Cicero was being driven into exile by Clodius, and while that was happening, Caesar gets word of an impending crisis in one of his provinces, namely that of Further Gaul. And seeing opportunity where others would see crisis, he races north at the insane speed of 90 miles a day on average. And just to stop on, on and talk about that 90 miles a day on average again, because we talked about it a little bit in last episode, but I really thought more about it. And yes, it'd be tough to eat in the saddle and get that saddle sore. But I also thought about how often does this guy stop to relieve himself? Think about it. That would be the biggest thing that would slow you down. And any, anybody who's done a cross country road trip would know that if you're with somebody who has to stop to go to the bathroom often, it really slows things down. So I'm imagining if you're riding with Caesar, you're just holding it in all day long <laughs> going at the end of the day. So it must've been one brutal ride. But we have come to the, might call it, proverbial Rubicon in Caesar's life. Caesar pre-Gaul and Caesar once he leaves to be governor of Gaul are like two different lives. Even many of the sources word it this way. Caesar up to this point has been flamboyant and extravagant in many ways, but outside of that, his career has largely been conventional. In other words, had he died at this point in history... It is possible or even likely that he would have been nearly forgotten by history. Just another senator, maybe a bit quirky, maybe like a Clodius, that those who pay attention to history and, and read Roman history would know his name, but your average person would not. Because up until this point, Caesar has mainly been a politician with some military service and even one year of command in Spain, but for the most part, he's been a politician. But for the rest of his life, he would be first and foremost a general. And for the rest of Caesar's life, he will be engaged in almost constant warfare. To put it into perspective, ancient sources tell us he fought as many as 50 pitched battles. To put that into perspective, Alexander the Great, the person that most Roman generals were trying to model themselves after and aspire to be like, engaged in five pitched battles and three major sieges throughout the course of his career. So Alexander had five pitched battles, Caesar had 50. And in the ancient world, I don't think that there's many or, or any that would ever surpass Caesar in the number of battles that he fought. Many of the ancient sources just outright say that he fought 
more battles more often and in quicker succession and in larger numbers than any general they had ever seen before and against the fiercest of opponents in the Gauls. And it wouldn't be until more modern generals like Napoleon that anyone would surpass the number of battles. And fun fact, Napoleon actually fought more battles than Caesar and Alexander combined. But Caesar's entire life up until this point has been in preparation for this moment. The staggering debts he's taken on, the alliances he's formed, the huge number of enemies he's made, especially among the Optimates, have all been to gain a major command. And now that he's finally there and he finally has that command, he has no intention of squandering this opportunity. As we've seen in the past in Caesar's life, he is very willing to break rules and laws if he believes that breaking them will be good for the Republic, good for himself, and perhaps most importantly, if breaking the rule or law in question will leave him more powerful than he was before he broke it. Just to name a few examples to remind you of the type of behavior he's exhibited in the past, when he was young, maybe 25, 26 years old, I think, he raised an army to defend the eastern provinces from an invasion when he had no authority to do this. He was a private citizen taking public speaking lessons on the island of Crete. He saw the province getting invaded, and he went there with no permission from the Senate, raised his own army, fought off the invaders, and saved the province. He also raised a private army to get revenge on the pirates who had kidnapped him. Again, he was not allowed to do this. He only did it because the governor wouldn't give him an army himself. So he basically was told no by the legally appointed governor and went ahead and raised an army of his own accord. And then he had asked the governor to crucify them. The governor had no interest. So Caesar, again, with no legal authority, crucified them himself. And you remember back to when he was a governor in Spain, Caesar was very willing to march outside of his province to attack what he perceived as enemies. Many other governors would have felt that it wasn't their place to leave their province. Caesar had no problems with that. Even going back to him showing icons of Marius, that had been breaking the rules and laws of Rome at the time as well. And then, of course, the most recent instance, his consulship, where he trampled all over the Senate's or namely the Optimates' authority. And while he didn't break laws per se, well, it's a little bit iffy if he broke some laws with Bibulus claiming omens, etc., etc. But he did trample over what the Optimates thought was good taste. But in all of these cases that I just mentioned, breaking the rules and laws in these cases were a gamble, specifically a gamble on himself. Well, now that Caesar's playing on the biggest stage of all, and he's got three provinces under his command, and he's looking for this huge war, he has no intention to stop betting on himself. He's not getting to the highest stakes and chickening out. He's just going to double down. And during Caesar's time as governor of Gaul, he will play extremely fast and loose with the laws, many of the laws of which he is the one who made. Because you'll remember, he passed a bunch of laws to, or at least a law with a bunch of different codes that were to regulate governors and was largely successful and kept in place for centuries. He will go ahead the very next year as governor and begin to break these rules. The rules were good enough for others, but not for Caesar, apparently. And just to give you an example, and we're going to go, we're going to talk about all this in detail, but during his time as governor, Caesar will invade neutral tribes' territories with no permission from the Senate. He will raise many more legions than his provinces are supposed to have, again, without permission from the Senate. But how does he get away with all this? The only way is to win 
to win big and to win often. And not to beat a dead horse, but when Caesar breaks all these laws, he is gambling on himself. And if at any point he should lose a battle or some disaster befalls his troops, he'd be done for in Rome. The optimates would come for his head. So Caesar can keep breaking these laws as long as he keeps succeeding and his talent shines through and and brings him and his troops victory after victory. But the second he were to lose, the optimates would seize him, haul him back to Rome, put him on trial, perhaps exile him, and he would end in shame. So talk about a lot of pressure. But if he wins, his critics find it very hard to criticize him as long as what he's doing keeps working out in the best interest of Rome. Plus, the common people love a conquering Roman general. They don't care much about the finer points of how a Roman governor should or should not behave. They just see somebody conquering foreign peoples, sending back great treasures, winning honor and glory for their young troops, their young boys that you know, many of them probably have sons that are in, in Caesar's army. So they couldn't care less that Caesar's not asking permission from the Senate. They just see a great Roman accomplishing great things. But Caesar was determined not just to achieve greatness. He was determined that both contemporaries and posterity should know about his greatness. And so he wrote of his conquests and published them in Rome. And this was common. It was common for generals in Rome to write commentaries on their campaigns, to let the Senate know, and sometimes the people as well, of what was happening and, and the trials they faced, and to make sure everybody knew how great they were doing, or at least to put the best spin on it. And to my knowledge, Caesar's commentaries are the only commentaries of any Roman general that survive in full today. So how lucky are we that that survives in full today and we can read it? It's also amazing that if you read these commentaries, which I have, you're actually reading Caesar's actual words, or at least a translation of them. You could probably get the Latin version too, but I don't read Latin. So it's amazing that this man died over 2,000 years ago, and yet he can still speak to you from beyond the grave. So far, I've talked about a lot of things that people have said about Caesar, people have told stories about Caesar. Now is the first time where we get to points where Caesar is telling his own story. These are actually Caesar's words. But this is Caesar we're talking about, right? Were his commentaries ever going to be average? And even Caesar's contemporaries seem to think that his Gallic commentaries were just works of art, masterpieces of Latin literature. I have a quote here from Cicero. I got it from Adrian Goldsworthy's book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus. Cicero was known to be a or the best orator in Rome, an incredible writer in his own right. So he's a person who would know whether or would have a valid opinion on, on how good Caesar's writing was. And here's what Cicero said. Quote, They are admirable indeed, like naked forms, upright and beautiful, paired of all ornamentation as if they had removed a robe. Yet while he wished to provide other authors with the means for writing history, he may only have succeeded in pleasing the incompetent who might like to apply their, quote, gifts to his material, for he has deterred all sane men from writing, for there is nothing better in the writing of history than clear and distinguished brevity, end quote. And that's a bit of a confusing quote where he says he's, discouraged all sane men. What he's saying there is that a lot of times the commentaries were not considered in Rome to be history themselves. They were to provide material for the historians to write the history. 
Cicero is saying that essentially Caesar has written his own history so well that he's deterred any sane historian or writer from trying to improve upon it and write a history. And the only people who are going to try to do that would be insane hacks who think that they can better Caesar's writing. Caesar's Gallic commentaries were famous for being extremely simple and direct Latin, and that's where he talks about it's paired of ornamentation, it's stripped of colorful, wild words. Caesar always said, use the simplest words possible to convey a message, and that compliment coming from Cicero means a lot because Cicero had the exact opposite writing style. Very flowery with tons of descriptions and very wordy, and Caesar's was the exact opposite, and yet still Cicero saw how beautiful the writing was. It's also interesting to note that Caesar almost always throughout the commentaries refers to himself in the third person. It gives it almost the feel that he is a dispassionate observer just relaying events to the audience which, of course, he's not. He is the main protagonist in all these events, and we should not forget this. And for much of what happens in Gaul, we rely primarily on Caesar's own account. And there will be many historians you'll see that will debate whether this is accurate or that's accurate, or I don't believe this number or that number, or this doesn't seem realistic. But here's the thing. If Caesar's the only source that we have, if you don't believe his account of things, then you have nothing to go off of. You're just guessing at that point. So for the most part, I'm going to relay what Caesar himself says. You can make your decision as to whether it's accurate or not. Certain points I will step in and say, hey, it becomes obvious from other sources that this is not really the way it happened. But in general, I'll leave that to the audience to decide. But as we go through Caesar's story, you'll see that, yes, there are many moments where there's possible bias. And at times, he even passes the buck to others where he should take the blame himself. But there are also times where he could have omitted a story that makes him look very bad, but he chooses to include it in the commentaries instead, which it gives him a lot more credibility when he includes things that don't make him look good. So then when he says things that do make him look good, it, it makes it feel like he's probably being relatively honest. And it's also unlikely he was just making wild stories up because his soldiers, his legates, his junior commanders were all writing of these events and, and writing back to their parents, back to their families, back to their political friends. So if he was just telling huge lies, then it would, be, it would have been obvious to his contemporary audience. But moving back to our narrative, Caesar arrives in Gaul and takes command of his three provinces and four legions. Within further goal, he goes specifically to Geneva, and the trip from just outside of Rome to Geneva, traveling at that 90 miles a day on average, takes him only eight days. That's mind-boggling to me. In eight days on horseback, he goes from just outside of Rome to Geneva. And the four legions that he takes over are the 7th, the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th legions. This is a force twice the size of the force that he had in Spain, which was, of course, only two legions. And the crisis Caesar had raced north to handle came in the form of a migrating tribe. These are very similar to the tribes that had roamed during the time of Marius that Marius had defeated. In this case, the migrating tribe was called the Helvetii, or Helvetians. They were a tribe from what is today modern-day Switzerland near Lake Geneva. And they had been preparing for the past two years now to move in mass to find or seize better land than what they currently had. They were utterly determined in this 
in this move of theirs because they burned all of their houses, all of their villages, and anything that they couldn't take with them so that there would be no temptation to turn back. Reminds me a lot of, and this is off the top of my head, so I'm pretty sure it was Hernan Cortez that when he landed in Mexico, burned his ships so his troops would know that there was no turning back. It was either success or death. Well, these Helvetii have done the same thing. They have burned all their homes, and men, women, and children are all making this move. And the migration includes some 368,000 people, 92,000 of which, or one-fourth, were males fit for fighting. Now, these are the numbers that the ancient sources give us. Uh, Caesar specifically says, I believe, that he, after... Where he eventually finds a wagon of theirs that has a bunch of different scrolls in it, and one of which is a head count of their people and how many were moving and a lot of the quantities of the grain they took, et cetera, et cetera. And he says that's where that number came from. Now, you'll find historians that say, oh, it's too high, it should be less. The, the Aries at that time couldn't handle that kind of population. I don't know how they can possibly make that decision to believe that hey, I know 2,000 years ago that the area couldn't handle that kind of population. So we're just going to go with the 368,000. If you think it's unrealistic, go ahead and cut it down in your head. Now, this plan to move the tribe had originally been created by a man named Orgetorix. Caesar describes him in the commentaries as the wealthiest and most aristocratic man in the tribe. And he says that Orgetorix convinced the entire tribe to burn their homes and move to this new land, and the tribe's reasoning and Orgetorix's reasonings were, one, that their territory was constrained by natural barriers on all sides. They felt that they were this great tribe that had a lot of fighting prowess, and yet the natural barriers that surrounded their land didn't allow them to grow anymore. This limited their population growth and their territory growth, and just as importantly, it limited their ability to wage war on and raid their neighbors, which every Gallic tribe loved to do. And their route that they planned, they planned to migrate all the way to the shores of Western Gaul, which is the Atlantic coast of France that faces west today. But this was not just a pick-up-and-burn-your-house type operation. Like I said, they'd spent two years planning to get to this moment, buying up pack animals, planting as many crops as they could, establishing good relationships with all the neighboring tribes who they'd have to pass through so that they can get to their intended destination. And Orgetorix was in charge of planning all of this, so he had a lot of power. But he also had secret ambitions to make himself king of the tribe. And this is, this is very interesting. Many of these tribes in Gaul, you, they're described by the Romans as barbarians, and yet many of them don't have kings. They have senates or some kind of similar elected body of government, or they're at least not autocracies. They're much more similar to Rome's government than you might imagine at first glance. So this guy, Orgetorix, plans to try to make himself king, and of course the tribe doesn't like that, but they don't know about it yet. So he enters into a conspiracy with two prominent men in neighboring tribes, and the three of them form basically a triumvirate to all try to make themselves kings of their own tribes and then make themselves the three kings of Gaul. Now, this is all extremely ironic that Caesar is relaying this to his audience because of course, that's exactly what Caesar had done. Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey had created a triumvirate to push through all the legislation they wanted in Rome and to basically rule over the aristocracy and the people and get whatever they wanted. And you got to think that Caesar relaying this would have had to have seen the irony in, in telling this and how bad that makes him look 
And yet he still tells the audience that. This is the thing I find fascinating about these commentaries. But moving on, long story short, because it's not exactly important to Caesar's part of the tale, Orgetorix's plot to make himself king is uncovered, and he dies in suspicious circumstances. Basically, there's a trial held for him, and then he summons a whole bunch of his soldiers there to intimidate the judges and scare off the trial, and he escapes, and then suddenly he dies, and nobody's quite sure how. It was very suspicious. But despite this, the Helvetii are still determined to move forward with this migration. They even convince a few additional tribes to join them on their migration. And on March 28th of 58 BCE, as Caesar is in the early months of his proconsulship, they begin assembling along the Rhone River in preparation for their departure. According to Caesar, there were two routes they could have taken out of their homeland to get to this new desired homeland. One was very difficult through a mountain range and left them dangerously exposed to attack. The second was much easier, but would lead them through the province of further Gaul, Caesar's province now. Now, they chose between these two routes, the second route, the one through Caesar's province. That's where there's a, this is a crisis for Caesar. And as they follow this route, it leads them to the town of Geneva, where Caesar is, or where Caesar just arrived. And Geneva is held by a tribe called the Allobroges, I'm going to do my best with these pronunciation of tribe names. Uh, might might not always be correct, but like I said, I'll do my best. So the Allobroges are the ones who rule over Geneva. It's their town, but it's part of Further Gaul. So Further Gaul is made up of a bunch of different tribes, but they are all ruled over by Rome and part of a Roman province. And Geneva was just over the Rhone River, which divided the two tribes' territories, meaning this river divided the Alloproges from the Helvetii, and the Helvetii are then heading for Geneva because there's a bridge that connects Geneva with the Helvetii's territory, meaning this would be the easiest way for them to, to get over the river would be to walk through that bridge through Geneva and out into further Gaul. But when Caesar arrives in Geneva, he quickly destroys the bridge so they can't cross. He also orders the people of Further Gaul to raise as many troops for him as possible. And the Helvetii arrive and they see Caesar has destroyed the bridge, so they send him envoys, saying that they would like safe passage through his territory and that they promised they would do no harm to Further Gaul. Of course, Caesar's not buying this for a second. He writes in his commentaries, uh, he reminds the Roman audience who would be reading these that the Helvetii had inflicted a defeat upon a proconsul of Rome in a generation past, killed the proconsul, and made the troops, the Roman troops, walk under the yoke. And just to explain what this yoke thing means is in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Roman world, it was a great humiliation to have warriors march under the yoke, which was a, basically a set of spears set up as like a triangle that all the soldiers would march underneath. And it was a huge humiliation, and it was a terrible thing in the, Rome, in the Roman eyes that the Helvetii had done this to them, and something that the Roman audience would hear this and say, oh, this needs to be avenged. And this defeat where they had forced the Romans to walk under the yoke and kill the proconsul had been during the migrations of the Germanic tribes that Marius had eventually defeated. Well, now Marius's nephew, Caesar, is here to protect Rome again from a migrating tribe, just as his uncle had in generations past. 
So he's really setting up this story for his Roman audience and justifying the actions that he's about to take. He also says that he felt that the Helvetii were a hostile group in general, and he did not trust them to not cause harm and damage in the province. Personally, I agree that whatever promises they had made up until this point, the Helvetii, it would be very difficult for Caesar to hold them to their word once they're in his province with 360,000 people. And even if they did intend to hold to their word and not cause any damage in the province, a host of so many people, 368,000, it's going to be very difficult for them to control all of their people. And there's always going to be some bad actors doing bad things. So you'll find many historians will, and even contemporaries, say that Caesar is purely glory hunting here, that he's picking a fight with the Helvetii for no reason, and that he's just trying to goad them into a war so that he can win glory. And there probably is some truth to that, or a lot of truth to that, because Caesar definitely wanted a war. However, I do think that he was right in not allowing them through the province, because they probably would have raped and pillaged their way through the province until they got into their new home, and what could Caesar have done about it then? But despite not wanting these guys to come through the province, Caesar's not ready for a confrontation yet. Transalpine Gaul only has one legion. He has other legions, he has four in total, but they're not in Transalpine Gaul. I believe the other three, if I'm not mistaken, are down by Illyricum, near the Balkans. So he needs time to consolidate his forces and to raise these new troops from Transalpine Gaul to put up a good fight against the Helvetii. So to buy some time, he tells them that he will consider the request and ask that they return to him, I think it's about two weeks later, on April 13th, for his answer. So the Helvetii envoys return to their tribe and give them the news, and they wait until April 13th. Of course, this is Caesar we're talking about, so he never sits still for a single second. He uses this time that he's bought himself to better prepare to resist the Helvetii. He immediately sets his troops to constructing fortifications on the Roman side of the river. These included a 16-foot rampart and ditch. It extended about 17 and a half miles or 28 kilometers from Lake Geneva all the way to what the Romans referred to as the Jura Mountains, which I'm not sure what mountain range that is today, but the Romans called it the Jura Mountains. And he garrisoned this wall with soldiers and created fortified outposts along the wall. This way, if the Helvetii come back and he tells them no and they try to cross by force, he's in a good position to push them back. And so April 13th does roll around and the Helvetii do come back and ask Caesar for his decision. Caesar promptly tells them that he will not let them pass into his province. He also tells them that if they try to come in to his province anyway, he will stop them by force. Interestingly, Caesar himself says in his commentaries that the Helvetii's quote, hopes were crushed, end quote, after he refuses them passage. I think it's kind of interesting that Caesar's even bothering to relay to the audience the hopes and dreams of the Helvetii and how they were crushed by his message. <laughs> but the Helvetii were a huge mass of people, but they were disorganized, but also very determined. So as they're sitting there on this riverbank, some of them grow frustrated. They've burned their homes. They've left everything and risked everything to try to get to this new land. And now Caesar's blocking them. What are they going to do? Turn back? They already burned their home. So a few isolated members of the tribe try to get past Caesar's wall. 
Some of these attempts were made on makeshift rafts to cross cross the river and then climb over the fortifications Caesar had made. Others tried to cross the river at shallow fords, and most of these attempts occurred at night, but a few of them during the day. All of these attempts were repelled by Caesar's troops. So the Helvetii leaders see this, and they say, well, I guess our only option is to turn back and take the second route, which they had hoped to avoid. Like I said earlier, this route would take them through mountains and was often very narrow, which would stretch out their lines to huge distances and make them very vulnerable to attack from enemy tribes. It also required them to get the permission of a number of tribes whose territory they would have to pass through. So the Helvetii turn back the way they come and take this second route. But this is not the last we would see of the Helvetii. Their new path takes them to land right along another border of further Gaul. And of course, Caesar's not having that either. And soon the Romans and Helvetii are at each other's throats and open warfare breaks out. But we will save that story for the next episode of the March of History. And I promise it's a good one. That wraps up this episode today, episode 23. Uh, don't forget to leave us a review in the podcast store if you listen on an Apple device. Feel free to share the podcast with friends and families and other history lovers. Subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications when it comes out. Our Instagram is at the March of History. The Instagram has a lot of cool history content. For example, this weekend I went to La Rabida which is in the area that Columbus, Christopher Columbus had all of his ships made and that his crew came from. And there they have three ships that are exact models of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And I put pictures of all those on the Instagram. So if you enjoy history, whether it's Roman history or any type of history, give the Instagram account a follow. I promise you it's a lot of fun and it's worth it. Our Twitter is at March underscore history. And we have a Facebook page if you search The March of History. And finally, our email is themarchofhistory at gmail.com. Feel free to send us any constructive criticism or positive feedback. We'd love to hear it or just reach out just to let us know that you're a fan and you're enjoying the podcast. And that's it for today on The March of History.